from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll hear from Wisconsinites who've lost loved ones in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Then, many families moved their children to different schools during the pandemic, and now some are missing from public school enrollment data. There are direct ties between a school district's number of pupils and the funding that they receive. So for school districts, reconnecting with these students is as much a financial prospect for them as it is concern out of students' well-being. We'll speak with two people who are helping Milwaukeeans connect and bridging gaps in the community. As they say, never be the, the hidden gem. Always talk about who you are. And I feel like we had the privilege to be part of that process and this project of really screaming to the world what Milwaukee is and what we have to offer. All that's coming up on Like Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with the conflict in Israel and Palestine that has escalated in recent weeks. It has weighed heavily on many around the world, including those with Wisconsin ties. Today, WUWM's Mayan Silver shares the stories of two people who lost relatives in the conflict. One Jewish woman with Milwaukee connections lost her niece to the Hamas terror attacks in the south of Israel. And one Milwaukee man lost his sister to Israeli missile attacks in the Palestinian territory of Gaza. Milwaukeean Mohammed Hamad was the central speaker in an event Friday night organized by the Islamic Society of Milwaukee called Standing Up for Gaza. It was an honor Hamad wished never happened. About a week ago, his 66-year-old sister Fahima Jamil Hamad was killed by Israeli missile attacks in Gaza. The last five days, it's like a nightmare. You want to wake and you want to disbelieve in what you hear. It's very difficult when you lose a very close sister or a brother. I know our loss in Gaza huge. I wish I can speak in behalf of every one of them, but I'm going to share just only one story about my sister, which is encompass most of the story of the people in Gaza. With tears, Hamad shared memories of his sister. Last year, I was with her. I spent around 70 days in the area north of Gaza. She was so thrilled to see me. I had been in this country the last one to three years. She was singing and dancing as soon as she saw me. He recalls that the next day she cooked him the most beautiful food. I cannot imagine how much, you know, the whole night spent to prepare it, to make sure her brother, who had been the last one to three years living in this country, enjoying a traditional Palestinian meal. Last Friday, it was the last time, you know, we contact here. She was so heavy. It was in, in a wedding of my niece. My brother told me, 
she, we were thrilled, you know, to see her, the happiness, how she dressed. And they were teasing her, you are like a bride now, shining in her face. She went through a lot, my sister. The last 17 years, when Gaza went under the siege, two of her houses has been demolished. In 2019, we were able, she was able to move to the new house. She was so happy. Finally, she settled. She's 66 years old. She had settled with her three kids and five grandchildren. Hamad said when the latest attack started, his sister moved to a camp seven kilometers from her house. He says she was fasting on Monday and went to the market to prepare to break her fast. That's when she was hit by an Israeli airstrike. They couldn't identify her body except from her purse. They found her name. It is very difficult to me until now to imagine what she went through at the last moment. How horrified the situation for her and for other people. 56 people died in that same moment. Hamad says his sister was a speech therapist who treated hundreds of kids who went through trauma. He said she's a beautiful soul and he will never forget her. Hamad's story is just one example of the devastation caused by the latest strife between Israel and Hamas. President Joe Biden has pledged support to Israel in its retaliation against the Hamas attacks, which killed 1,300 people and left around 150 Israelis hostage in Gaza. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, which includes Wisconsin's Mark Pocan, has written a letter to Biden asking him to push Israel to follow international law and for the U.S. to establish an international corridor for Palestinians displaced by the conflict in Gaza. In Milwaukee, speakers at Friday's Standing Up for Gaza event called for immediate de-escalation and ceasefire. Milwaukee attorney Munjed Ahmad was one of those speakers. He said the root cause of the violence is, quote, 75 years of colonial settler terrorism, referring to Israel's takeover of Palestinian lands. And as somebody said earlier, it's when Israel or the people of Israel feel a little pinch that, oh, finally, the world cares about what's going on in that area. Well, you know what? We're human, too. And you know what? We damn well have the right to resist our occupiers. We damn well will continue. <laughs> International law applies to us as well as it applies to everybody else. And we will use it. And don't blame us because you did nothing, nothing to get rid of the root cause of what is happening, which is the occupation. But some Jews want to know what that means to ask for Palestine to be free from the river to the sea or to end occupation since 1948 when the state of Israel was founded. They want to know if the message is to extinguish Israel altogether. There's one Jewish country in the world and Jews have been there continuously since the days of the Bible and are deeply connected to it. And there are plenty of people who want to dismiss all that. That's Ilana Khan, 
Before she moved to Chicago a few years ago, Khan spent decades being active in Milwaukee's Jewish community. She was director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation, served on the executive committee of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee, and was the editor of the Wisconsin Jewish Chronicle. I mean, I feel like I have spent my adult life trying to sort out how we make peace with each other and how we live with each other and how we build, um, how we expand our ability to empathize with people who are different than us. And I've spent time in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank trying to listen and understand and make space in my heart. And it's so painful. It's so painful. It would be so much easier to only care about my own people and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just scared about what's going to happen here as well as there. On October 7th, Khan received a terrifying message from her daughter, who is attending university in Israel. I woke up for whatever reason at 3.30 in the morning and saw that I had a text from my ex-husband and a text from my daughter. Um, and my daughter said, we're at war. And so... Um, I spent the day worrying and trying to be in touch with her, and my daughter was in Jerusalem at the time. During the day, Khan learned that her daughter and sister-in-law in Israel were safe. But there was one relative she hadn't heard from. Her niece, Stav, who lived in a kibbutz just north of Gaza, with her boyfriend, Dvir, and his two kids. Dvir had been texting with his ex-wife, the mother of his kids, during the attack. And then he went quiet. And then one of the children took his phone, obviously, and said, um, Mommy, Abba's been murdered. Stav also. Abba's father. Dad's been, Dad's been murdered. Stav also. Help. They were in their shelter, and terrorist came in, and Dvir was his name, the father, her boyfriend, and he tried to protect the children with his body, and he was killed. And then Stav tried to protect the children and I guess tried to fight them off. And she was killed. And then they, for whatever reason, took mercy on the children and covered them with a blanket and took a lipstick and wrote on the mirror, um, the fighters of Al-Qasim don't murder little children. And of course we know that in other places they did murder little children, but these children were spared and they spent um, some hours there until one of the neighbors came and got them. She says the loss has been devastating. I've been, um, like a lot of us, like a lot of us in the community, whether we know somebody individually, you know, personally or not, but just sick with worry, just sick, just sick. And not sleeping very well, of course. Khan says her niece was four days short of her 34th birthday. She says she's also terrified about the viciousness of the discourse on the Israel-Palestine conflict, online and in the community. About what feels like so many people's inability to see humanity, to recognize humanity of Israelis and Jews. And I'm really worried about the heating up of our, of, in our communities. You know, we, we don't get to control what happens over there. We can sit and worry. I can have a knot in my stomach all day long. But she says we do control how we treat our neighbors. 
Khan says she hopes amid the conflict and vitriol, people can take a step back and recognize each other's humanity. Both Khan's niece and Hamad's sister would have wanted it that way. For Lake Effect, I'm Ayan Silver. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver reporting on how the conflict in Israel and Palestine has directly affected some in Wisconsin. During the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a reshuffling in where K-12 students went to school. Wisconsin public schools saw their biggest enrollment drop in 35 years, while private and homeschool numbers took off. The Wisconsin Policy Forum has a new report on where students went over the last three years. The research shows there are between about 4,500 and 12,000 students that have gone, quote, missing from school enrollment data. WUWM education reporter Emily Files talks to Policy Forum researchers Sarah Shaw and Ari Brown about their findings. From fall of 2019 to fall of 2022, the public schools saw a 32,000 student decline. Um, And those students appear to have gone in a few different directions, um, into private schools, into homeschools. Some of them, those numbers are dropping as the result of demographic decline and and declining birth rates. Um, But then there was this contingent of about 4,500 to 11,600 students um, that we couldn't account for. So could you go through that 32,000 student decline? How many of those students potentially moved to private schools, homeschools, and how you came to that number of the students that are quote unquote missing from schools in Wisconsin? We started with potential movement to private and home schools. And one important caveat here is that we couldn't track individual students. We don't have those identifiers from publicly available data. So we're looking at the total increases or decreases um, in these three sectors. And we saw that public, uh, private school and homeschool enrollment, if you look at their increases taken together, um, increased by about 11,000 students. So that could mean that those are new students to the system entirely who didn't go to public school and went straight into private or homeschool, or it could also mean that these are students who moved from public school to private and homeschool settings and probably a combination of those two. So that 11,000 takes care of about a third of the 32,000 student drop. And then we looked at declining birth rates and worked a little bit with the UW-Madison Applied Population Lab to try to get a sense of what could we expect for the three years that we were looking at of natural decline, um, just based on what birth rates were at, how many fewer students would we have expected to see even without the impact of the pandemic. And that gave us a range of between about 9,600 and 16,800 students. So the remainder of what's left over, that's how we get a range of between the 4,500 and 11,600 that we couldn't account for through those two ways of either looking at private school and homeschool or trying to estimate what this decline would be. So this is kind of looking back on the last three years of um, student movement in Wisconsin schools and there was this huge loss of students from public schools that was not that hasn't 
been made up. Um, and a lot more students are in homeschool. A lot more students are in private school, but there's still a certain number of students that are not accounted for in any of those data sets. So what might have happened to those missing students? There are a lot of potential hypotheses here. And one of our conclusions was that it is likely some combination of all of these hypotheses. Um, probably the largest one or the one that came up most frequently that has the potential to explain the most missing kids um, is that there's been real declines of enrollment in pre-K and kindergarten. Um, that happened in that first year of the pandemic where we at the time attributed it largely to parents wanting to delay sending their kids into a school setting, whether because it didn't feel safe or they were already at home or what have you. Um, but those numbers have actually, they, they've started rebounded, but have remained depressed. Um, so really looking at what's happening with those youngest learners could be a big part of it, um, especially knowing that our private school and homeschool data tend to be less rigorously collected than public school. So there could be some of our youngest students um, involved there. For example, homeschool enrollment uh, data collection doesn't start until first grade. So generally thinking of our youngest students as one place where they may exist in the state and are not yet getting captured in counts, either because the counting isn't happening or because um, they aren't going to school yet. So that's, that's one big chunk of, of possibilities. Another group that we saw a real drop in is our migrant students whose families migrate for seasonal work typically. Uh, it's not a huge group of students to begin with, but they saw an almost 50% drop in enrollment. So that's a possibility for where some of where we could look to find some missing students. Um, the losses were concentrated in our city districts and in our largest districts and among American Indian, black and white students. So a, a fairly wide swath of the population. We're looking at potentially disconnection from school through mental health concerns, um, a sense of did school seem to be optional when it went to, to virtual and hybrid and then back to in-person? Yeah, and and I think just to add to that, the student counts that we're using here are point in time counts. So they're taken on the third Friday in September. They're kind of audited with an, another count in January. But with things like COVID quarantines um, and certainly with uh, chronic absenteeism, habitual truancy, which we know have been uh, big issues over the last couple of years, we've seen rates of chronic absenteeism increase, for example, um, there's certainly the potential for, for students that are um, disconnected, um, might still be attending school every now and then, but maybe not at rates that they used to. Um, and I think that that would be kind of, um, you know, when we look past potential data issues, if there are still students that are remaining in that 4,500 to 11,600 group, um, I think that's really where uh, the rubber hits the road in terms of policy um, and looking at how we connect those students back with school in a way that they were connected uh, prior to the pandemic. What efforts um, are you aware of that are happening in the state to try to re-engage with those students who either stopped attending school altogether or are attending kind of on and off and might not have been counted in the enrollment numbers that you're looking at? 
So two specific ones that we note in the report. Um, the first is that the Speaker of the Assembly has convened a task force on truancy, um, which may get into some of these related pieces of unenrollment and chronic absenteeism as well. They're all kind of different stages on the same spectrum of student engagement. Um, a second is that DPI used some of their uh, discretionary funds through the federal COVID relief dollars um, to partner with Graduation Alliance. And they estimate that between 3,000 and 4,000 high school students were reconnected to school there, um, which is notable when we looked at the data by grade level, because at the same time that we saw our youngest learners dropping the most in the enrollment, uh, we saw actually the highest stability amongst our ninth through 12th graders. Um, so that could be related to something about those grades being less likely to drop in the first place, but could also certainly be tied to this effort to keep them engaged um, through this partnership. And then one other kind of broad stroke that isn't a specific effort underway necessarily, but is a theme that we heard is districts finding ways to uh, either use their COVID dollars to find and reconnect with families or just find ways to make family voice and student voice a larger part of a school's operations. And that this is a way to re-engage kids who for whatever reason may feel disconnected from school um, to feel like their voice is valued and that their education is tied to their own hopes and goals for themselves. And, you know, the only thing I'll add here is I, I think one of the items that we heard the most uh, in doing this research was um, the populations that we're potentially looking at here for being at high risk of having some of those missing students look very different. It's both some of our youngest students and some of our oldest students. It's our students in cities. Uh, and I think that that one of the biggest things that we heard is that the solutions here are going to look different depending on those different student populations. Um, one of the items, for example, that we heard was um, buses and issues with, uh, you know, hiring um, bus drivers uh, and, and that being a potential issue uh, in terms of just getting students to school. So um, I think that that what that um, reconnection looks like uh, is going to be different depending on what kind of student group you're, you're dealing with. So while there are some students who um, might be back in the enrollment data if these re-engagement efforts work, the reality is that a lot of students have apparently moved from public schools to private schools and homeschooling. So what implications does this have for public schools and in particular urban public schools, which saw the, the most um, declining enrollment? So these public school losses are of double concern for school districts. The first concern is, of course, for the students themselves and their families um, and kind of understanding where the disconnect has happened and what the ramifications are for that student's education and also for their access to a lot of the social services that school can be a connector for. Um, but then a, the second main point of of concern for school districts here is their funding, um, that there are direct ties between a school district's number of pupils and the funding that they receive. Uh, you don't lose one student and then be able to not hire a teacher, um, or you might have enrollment losses that are spread across grades where now you're having to reshuffle teachers or, or do more with less. Uh, so for school districts, reconnecting with these students in cases where they are there, um, but are are not connected in with the school system, is as much a financial prospect for them as it is um, concern out of students' well-being. Sarah Shaw and Ari Brown are researchers with the Wisconsin Policy Forum. 
They spoke with WUWM's Emily Files, and you can find a link to their full report at WUWM.com. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear a new episode of our music series, Live at Lake Effect, featuring Milwaukee's own contemporary bluegrass band, Chicken Wire Empire. It's always been part of Wisconsin's music. To be honest, a lot of people moved up here for logging from the South and brought the music with, so there's always been a scene, but yeah, it seems like it's blowing up more and the younger generations are getting more into it. But first, we explore Milwaukee through the eyes of two people who are acting as connectors in the community, Sandra Dempsey and Derek Mosley. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Good things are brewing in Milwaukee, and Visit Milwaukee has launched a TV series to share these stories of positivity. Good Things Brewing seeks to show what makes Milwaukee a great place to live through the eyes of some of the city's most interesting residents. We're partnering with Visit Milwaukee and speaking with some of those guests on Good Things Brewing, hosted by David Caruso. Today, we're joined by Derek Mosley, self-described foodie and director of the Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education, and Sandra Dempsey, founder and owner of Source 10 Video Marketing Agency. Sandra and Derek, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you both for being here today. Thank Thank you. you so much. So I know neither of you are Milwaukee natives, but to me, you're as good as any native, as far as I'm concerned with all the work you do and how (laughs) passionate you are about this city. So to start, I'd love to know what brought you both to Milwaukee. Sandra, let's start with you. Uh, Love. I marry (laughs) a a guy who is the most kindest man I have ever met. And I met him in Mexico while I was on vacation. He was on vacation. We met there and we got married and that's why I moved to Milwaukee. And Derek, how about you? You're from Chicago. I am. And uh, what brought me here was a full-ride scholarship to Marquette Law School. That's it. That did it. I came sight unseen. And I, I guess I didn't know this personally, so your position now is a very full-circle yeah, moment. I'm home. I know. Yeah. started at Marquette and left for a little bit, and now I'm back full-circle. And Sandra, as you mentioned, you moved here from Mexico in 2002, and you were working as an attorney at that time. I would love to know more about your transition into the media world from that. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I must say I never liked to be an attorney, Derek. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all right. I'm sorry. You know, it was, was one of these uh, career choices that you make at the time you're young, right? You're 18, and you just choose something that you think is going to be good for you, and I felt like that was good. But when I came to Milwaukee, I stayed home for a little while, and then um, an opportunity came to work at ESPN Deportes. I knew the manager, and he was looking for someone who spoke Spanish, who could work in the ESPN Deportes station at the time. And uh, he asked me if I knew someone, and I was like, oh, let me think. And then my husband said, what about you? And I'm like, oh, maybe that's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about me? So I went and found out more about the opportunity, loved it, loved it. And that's why I started working at um, Media and Communications. And then from there, I moved to Telemundo, Wisconsin, on the sales department. And that's really pretty much the start of my career in Media and Communications, which I always loved and adored. Like, I can't believe I didn't realize earlier in my life that that's where I 
should have gone from the very beginning. But you know what? Uh, life is good, right? <laughs> you Absolutely. reinvent yourself, you take opportunities, and then you do the best um, you can with them. Yeah, you founded Source 10 Creative, with the, which is a video production company, and also founded Estamos Unidos US, which is a Spanish-language multimedia platform. Um, in the growth of these companies and being in Milwaukee, how did you find your growth reflecting the need that's here in the community for different language media, for addressing all of the audiences that Milwaukee has here? You know, I would say the beautiful thing about this is that I have remained really true to the core of what got me into me and communications, which was the need of Spanish language. Uh, when I went to Le Mundo, same thing, assisting clients in how they can talk to Latino community in a way that is relevant and that they can understand and feel welcome. So when I created my Estamos Unidos, that was exactly the same thing. I noticed that even though some companies were making the effort to attract Latinos, a lot of them weren't. And I took that stand like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I want to see Latinos everywhere in Milwaukee. And I feel like the entertainment area was one of the easy ones. So I was like, why am I the only one rock climbing? Why am I the only one ice skating. So I decided to create this platform where I will do a video vlog about come and rock climb with me. Come and go ice skating. Take your family. And doing it in Spanish, I feel like made them feel like really welcome and connected to something that they haven't experienced before. And so that's how Star Wars News was born, seeing that need, that there wasn't enough content and information of high quality to attract Latinos to get them involved in the community. And then based on that, when I created Source 10, that was Pretty much the same idea was to continue to help organizations, profits, non-profits, to really put their word out there in a way that matters to Latino. And I became like that bridge that communicates Latinos to organizations who want to attract them or speak to them. I feel like you both serve as a type of bridge for many people here in Milwaukee. Derek, you're a foodie for one. You're an efficient. You were a judge. You're beloved by many Milwaukeeans. And oftentimes, at least from my perspective, maybe you are that first person that Sandra's saying, like, it helps to have a person just to try it first or to invite you to something. It takes it a little, like, makes it a little scary for people, like, just to get in the door. Right? Yeah. You, you know what? I noticed that, um, Audrey, I was, you know, Facebook was interesting to me because I had all these black friends, all these white friends, but they weren't mutual friends. And so it, it became my goal to try to get those two groups together, and I did it through food, right? Food's the best way to, to do that. And I was introducing restaurants, uh, black-owned restaurants that a lot of my white friends had never even heard of, and vice versa. And so that's how it all started, trying to bring people together, is just trying to, what's better than getting together over food, right? Yeah. Fellowshipping over food. And so that's how it all started. And, you know, with the weddings and everything like that, you just get to know more people. And then being a judge, you run for office. So I'd run for election every four years. So you get to know all parts of the city and not just, you know, where you live. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be that person. Yeah. I'm, ha I'm glad to hear, like, normally people think of foodies as like, well, the food is driving me first. But for you, it's like, well, the, the fellowship the around fellowship. food is what's primary. And this food is a great byproduct. Right? <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah. it's a great way to teach people about Mm -hmm. cultures. Right. Right. And that's how yeah. people learn about things that they never tried before. And it's great. Yeah, it's a perfect way for people to immerse in yes. a different culture. Right. And I always say to, learn, to understand a culture, you just can't read about it. You have right. to go and experience it and be part of it. Yeah, that's great. Well, and um, along the lines of going places where you feel at home, uh, I want to talk about El Rey's. You went to the mm -hmm. location on Oklahoma, and Sandra, you said that this grocery store made you feel like you were back home in Mexico for a moment when you first arrived in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. So how was your experience finding places in Milwaukee like El Rey when you first lived here that made you feel like, 
I move to a community that I'm welcome in and that I want to stay in. You know, I think, well, for many reasons, made me feel like I'm at home, right? I mean, the foods, the people, uh, the tradition of that store. And going outside of that place in Milwaukee, I feel like I saw a huge connection with my town in Mexico. We have a lot of churches there. There's a lot of churches here. There's a lot of manufacturing companies there. There's a lot of manufacturing companies here. So just that itself, um, I remember feeling like, oh, this is like, back in town in Mexico. And then also where I grew up is very close to Mexico City. Similar here, Milwaukee is very close to Chicago, right? The big city. So I just felt like there were a lot of things in common. Um, but in addition to that, I feel like the people were so welcoming. Like really, I think it wasn't so much about the place, but it was really about the people going anywhere. I remember to say, uh, weather call people cool. Like, you know, I feel like this just describes Milwaukee really well. So I feel like everywhere I went to, you know, it was the school, it was the church, it was the grocery store. No matter where I went, people were very welcoming, gave me a smile. And I feel like that's what made me feel at home, regardless of where I was. Derek, I want to have you reflect on a first experience for you. That was part of the episode. You took David to America's Black Holocaust Museum. Can you share what it was like for you the first time you walked through there and why you wanted to include it in the episode? Yeah, so I remember the original location that was started by Dr. James Cameron. And I uh, would walk in there and he would be in there and you can talk to him and just to hear the story, especially the story, his story, right? How, I mean, you could, he still had the rope marks on his neck and he had a little scarf there so you couldn't see it. And and then it was taken over by a, a friend, Dr. Burt Davis took it over and, you know, it, it tells a great story. So so many times now we feel, I hate saying black history all the time, because when you say black history, some people think it's not their history, right? But if you're living in the United States, this is your history. A lot of this is your his, history. So I refer to it as blacks in history, because that way everybody understands what it's all about. And we have a rich, rich history here. I mean, a lot of people go to jazz in the park and sit there and listen to great music, but didn't know that used to be where the courthouse was. And that was the place where uh, um, an enslaved man named Joshua Glover escaped from Missouri, made his way up to Racine. Uh, he was captured, brought to the jail here in Milwaukee. And the citizens of Milwaukee broke him out of the jail. And we had a law, the Supreme Court passed a law called the Fugitive Slave Act that said that if you had an enslaved person you caught, you had to give him back to his owner. And we were the first state to defy that. That is something that should be in every single history book that's taught here in Milwaukee. It's a huge story. And, you know, we don't tell that story. It's such a rich history. And that's why I love that museum, because you learn stories that aren't taught in school. Absolutely. And through Good Things Brewing, it gives audiences, not just here, but all over the Midwest, just a little taste of what Milwaukee's like and to experience it through you both and the other guests that were featured. Can you both share uh, any main takeaways or your favorite parts of being involved in Good Things Brewing? I feel like the fact that we're able to put Milwaukee in a spotlight outside of Milwaukee, right? I mean, the work that BC Milwaukee is doing to take this show beyond Milwaukee and really bring the spotlight to show how rich we are, how diverse we are in activities, experiences, places, locations, people. I feel like it's something that, um, as they say, right, I mean, never be the the hidden gem, always kind of like talk about who you are. And I feel like we had the privilege to be part of that process and this project of really screaming to the world what Milwaukee is and what we have to offer. For you, Derek? Yeah. Um, for me, I got to introduce people to my like favorite places. So I'm one of the, I'm, I'm kind of weird. So 
Um, you know when you eat cereal and at that done at the cereal you drink the milk, <laughs> and so that's why I love Pilcrow because Pilcrow has these flights mm-hmm. of of coffee, but the coffee is flavored. So they have like Golden Grams, they have Fruit Loops, they have all these flavors, and it's like a kid drinking the bowl at the end. So I wanted to introduce everybody to that. And Thelma Carroll Wine Merchants, mm-hmm. you know, it was just a place where you walk in. The moment I walked in there the first time, I felt like I was home. They're like, sit down, have a seat. What can we get you? This one's on the house. Try this. I want you to try it. And I think this is what it's all about. This is why I love this city. But probably the most important part about doing that program was I would have never met Sandra. Yeah. We never met until with those, that episode. Mm-hmm. And so if it wasn't for that, I mean, our paths are crazy crossing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's unbelievable <laughs> right. that we just haven't stopped and said, hey, who are you? Right. Because we, 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 our paths cross a lot. And now I see it now that I know her. And I'm like, oh, there she is. <laughs> yeah, here we but, go. <laughs> but probably, if it wasn't for that show, we may have never met. Yeah, true. Derek Mosley is the director of the Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. Sandra Demsey is the founder and owner of Source 10 Video Marketing Agency and co-founder of Estamos Unidos U.S. They both are featured in Visit Milwaukee's Good Things Brewing series, and you'll find a link to the full episode at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with contemporary bluegrass band Chicken Wire Empire. That's in the latest episode of our music series, Live at Lake Effect. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our new music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together, along with Visionary Studios, to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with the band airing exclusively here on Lake Effect. Today, we have Milwaukee's own Chicken Wire Empire. Joining us at the Lake Effect Surf Shop are Carter Schiltz on mandolin, John Pike on the banjo, Jordan Kroger on stand-up double bass, Ernest Bruce is the fourth on fiddle, and Kyle Shellstad on guitar. Here's the band performing a cover of J.J. Kale's If You're Ever in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, you better move around tonight. 
temptation slipping in and out of sight they don't care about Dallas, Texas they don't care about Wichita and if you're ever in Oklahoma
Hi, this is Audrey Nowakowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We're here at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood, along with Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep, who's co-producing a music series with me called Live at Lake Effect. Hey, Trapper. Aloha. Aloha. Audrey, Indeed. you just got back from Hawaii. Yeah, back How in the mainland. It? it was amazing. It was good? Thought of the surf shop a lot while I was out there. Nice. Saw some surfers on the water. And we are in a surf shop in Wisconsin. And we are hearing bluegrass music, which is often, you know, thought of as southern mountain music, at least to a lot of, you know, casual music fans. So can you talk about, to start, bluegrass seems like it's sort of blowing up in Wisconsin. Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. It seems to be like it's blowing up. It's always been part of Wisconsin's music. To be honest, there was a big national bluegrass festival way up north called Mole Lake. And that was uh, back in the day, and they always had major artists coming through. So um, a lot of people moved up here for logging from the south and brought the music with. So there's always been a scene. But yeah, it seems like it's blowing up more, and the, the younger generations are getting more into it. Would you say that's beyond Wisconsin, too? What do you think is the general state of the bluegrass genre? Yeah, I think, I think it's doing great. I think it's um, making its way into pop music. I think right now there's the most famous bluegrass musician alive is Billy Strings, and he's brought it to a completely different level and new audience and all that, and really can't give him enough credit for doing that. And he definitely had a good foundation to build off of, but yeah. So that foundation being the Stanley Brothers, Bill Monroe, and we have all that traditional bluegrass, right. and now we have progressive bluegrass, and we have punk bluegrass, we have jam grass. Where does Chicken Wire Empire fit into all the, uh, the different genres? Um, somewhere in the middle. I guess the best way to put it is at a progressive festival, we're the most traditional band, and at a traditional festival, we're probably the most progressive band. Fair enough. Can you describe jam grass a little more? Because I know, like... When you first formed your group, like half was uh, traditional well, bluegrass we, background, the other was jam bands. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, so we were in a, some of us when we started this band, we were in like a, a bluegrass kind of jam jam band with drums, you know, um, just going way out there with the genre and keeping like elements like banjo or mandolin and stuff in the music, but then just playing so not bluegrass, you know, making it techno-y or whatever you want to call it and all that kind of stuff. And when we started the band, some of us were into that. Some of us were really traditional pickers. So we did meet kind of in the middle eventually and still are. But I think also when we started the band, we were a bluegrass band. So we were playing mostly covers. You start writing music and everything changes. So uh, from the moment y'all walked in, uh, I sense a, uh, a family element, right, to, to your band and, you know, the in-between banter uh, between songs. And, and even during the songs, I've noticed kind of glances back and forth and uh just thinking of this kind of music being a family affair uh, i want to turn it to ernie and you are the fourth musician uh in yeah. your family correct can you talk about uh your family's lineage with music and how you came to be uh, uh the great musician that you are <laughs> well uh to keep it quick and concise, I would... Uh, we don't have to go through the whole family tree. Just so, just, uh, so, 1723. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, basically, I don't know, growing up, I was just surrounded a lot by music. Um, it's kind of funny because it was a lot of uh, choral music and classical music, really. Um, I, I had a friend introduce me to bluegrass when I was about 12 or 13, and I went to the library and just Everything that had a violin on the cover, I tried to, to grab. And uh, anything, any of the CDs that were adjacent to that, um, 
I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny, at least for myself, that I started off such, uh, with such classical roots, and now here I am <laughs> playing, playing this kind of music. But it was always great just to grow up with a, a mom and dad that really just loved music and were really passionate about you know, playing from your soul, playing from your heart. Um, and then I have a bunch of siblings, and for whatever reason, they decided to all pursue music as a career as well. So I've been really blessed to have that. And then, you know, uh, you can't really choose your family, but, uh, but then we have this bluegrass. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people that, I don't know, we're from all over the place, even within the state or even where we are in our lives. Just, but just to put into perspective, I think like two weeks ago we spent 50 hours in a van together. So, yeah, I think thankfully with the pandemic, uh, I, it kind of evened out the odds with uh, how much time I was spending with my family versus <laughs> versus all of you. <laughs> now we're starting to bring those numbers up again. Can you uh, introduce us to some of the other family in the, the empire that is the chicken wire? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I'll start with Jordan here. I've known Jordan for about. Well, I think probably like seven or eight years, actually. Probably now. Yeah. And then uh, here we have uh, Carter Schultz on the mandolin. He uh, basically just sits at home and practices as much mandolin as he can <laughs> all day. John Pike on the banjo here is the best in the Midwest. And uh, it's not just me saying that. That's the Madison Music Association as well. We heard it. <laughs> yes. We heard it. Yeah. And then to my left... Uh, your right is Kyle Shellstad. Well, how long have you known Kyle Jordan? Mm. I've known him for a little bit. Uh, Kyle, Kyle plays in a band uh, based out of Minneapolis called Barbaro, and he moved to Milwaukee not too long ago, so he's been uh, playing with us now for a good portion of the summer. Great guitar player, great songwriter. Good, handsome dude, too. Too bad you can't see him out there in Radio Land. Well, welcome to uh, Milwaukee, and thank you for joining us at the uh, the Lake Effect Surf Shop. This has been a terrific morning uh, with you all, so thank you for stopping by. Thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure. That was Milwaukee's own Chicken Wire Empire joining us for Live at Lake Effect. Be sure to head to wuwm.com and our YouTube and social media channels to see them performing three original songs in the Lake Effect Surf Shop. That video was done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect. Sound engineering is done by WUWM's Jason Reby. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect are released monthly, and be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Rhett Miller, Dead Horses, Raina, and Night Moves if you haven't already. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we're talking fall, y'all. We'll help you plan a trip to Door County and tell you about some of the activities and events that you can enjoy there during harvest season. Plus, we'll tell you about some of the best drives in the state to take in the changing colors. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.